0: Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 1:13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Rob. For those of you that I don't know, I know some of you are new and some of you I just haven't had a chance to say hello and I want to. So I'd love, um, TC mentioned this as well, but I'd still love to meet you and say hello as well, be here after the service and would love to do that. Uh, Let me start off with just this brief illustration. My family and I were at Universal Studios two weeks ago, around that sometime. And uh, we'd done the Disney thing in the spring and we wanted to come back and do the Universal uh, part of that. So there's two parks in Universal and we were kind of enjoying both of those. And the difference between Disney and Universal, among other things, is Universal has a lot more roller coasters. I mean, it's got rides of all kinds. That's kind of what they're, they're sort of known for. We have an age spread in our daughters from the youngest is just turned nine and the oldest is 14. We have an 11-year-old in the middle. So when you have a just-turned-nine on one end and a 14-year-old on the other end, you ride a variety of rides. And we rode a variety of rides over those couple of days. And what I noticed is virtually every ride had some kind of restraint system. And sometimes you're, you're on the ride and you get through it and you're like, I didn't need that restraint system. I think it was just for show or, or maybe for lawyers. Probably, probably more for the lawyers. But sometimes that restraint system, you're in the middle of the ride and you're thinking, if it was not for this, I'm not getting out of this park alive. My very life depends on this restraint system. And you know, depending on how what a thrill seeker you are, the more dangerous the better, you know? And I literally remember there were a couple of these rides that I was thinking, I sure hope this thing is locked. You Because know? you got the 15-year-old kid that's checking it before you go. It's like, did he really tug on mine hard enough? I don't know, because I'm going to die if this thing comes loose. Now, the reason I start with that is the two verses that Luke just read are those kinds of two verses. There are certain parts of the Bible that you have to buckle up your seatbelt for because your life depends on them. And that's true of the two verses that Luke just read and, and they just went by so fast. I don't know if you caught the significance of them and even if you're listening closely, you won't really understand the significance of them until we do some time in them, until we dig down and explore all that's there and unpack the, the power of them. And I literally mean, These two verses can change the way you view the Christian life. I literally mean that, and I I know I get excited about stuff. This is not an exaggeration. There's no hyperbole. These two verses can change the way you view the Christian life. And this morning, I just want to talk to two groups of people. If your walk with God is stale a little bit, like if your relationship with God's a little stagnant, a little stale, we all get there sometimes, you know? These two verses are for you this morning. You're here for that reason. And another set of people, if you don't have a relationship with God or you're not real sure that you have a relationship with God, These two verses are there for you this morning. So much depends on our understanding of these two verses. And with that said, I don't wanna waste any more time on an intro. I wanna dive right in. So here's where we are. We're in the series called The Center of All Things. It's a study in Colossians. We're gonna go through it verse by verse. And you can see today's text, we've just got two verses. We're gonna slow down and just drill down in these two verses. This is week three of our series. You may have gotten one of these journals if you've been here the last couple of weeks. This is designed for everybody to have one. It's not designed, we don't have enough of them where if you left yours at home, you can get another one, or if you lost yours, you can get another one. But if you did not get one, if you did not get one either week one or week two, grab one today. We have a few left, not a lot, but they're in the the back um, atrium right as you leave the doors. They're gonna be right there on your left. So grab one. But if you don't have one right now, you can still just use your Bible or notes, whatever you wanna do, because we're gonna mark up this text together as we have been doing. So go ahead and open up either your Bible or your ESV illustrated journal to the verses that we're in today, which is chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and we're going to dive into this. Now, the whole point of Colossians, this whole letter that Paul wrote, is this idea that Jesus is the center of everything, both at the macro level of the universe, like he literally holds all things together in the entire universe, and at the micro level of each individual heart, he is at the center there. And if that's true, Jesus is really at the center of all things, the center of everything, then it makes sense that he'd be the the center of all of our things, our identities, our relationships with our families, our careers, everything about us, Jesus wants to be at the center because that's his place. That's his place in the world. That's his place in the cosmos. That's his place in our own hearts. And that's the thesis that Paul is unpacking as we walk through this. And we get to these two verses, 13 and 14, that flow right out of the prayer that Lloyd walked us through last week, this beautiful prayer. That's such a wonderful prayer for to pray for yourself, your family, your friends. And one of the lines in that prayer is this idea that we would overflow with thanksgiving. It's this joyfully giving thanks. What shall we joyfully give thanks for? Well, how about our redemption? How about our rescue, which is the text that we see that flows right out of that. So what I'd like to do is put both of these verses on the screen, if we can, and then we're going to read these verses together as a body. You've heard them read. Now I want you to read them together in unison as a body. Here we go. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now that you've heard it read, now that you read it out loud, let's dive in, unpack it. And if you have a pen or pencil, this is where I'm going to encourage you to mark up the text a little bit as we go, so we can clearly understand the connections between the words. Every word matters in this short sentence over these two verses. The first word is he. Well, you have to ask the question who is the he referring to? You're assuming it's God, but is it referring to the Son, the Spirit, the Father? Well, it's easy to know because you can glance back up just one verse and you see a reference to the Father uh, from verse 12. So, what I want to encourage you to do is draw an arrow from the word he in verse 13 to the word the Father in verse 12. That way your brain can be reminded that he goes back to the previous reference of the father. Now, by the way, you'll also notice on the screen, as we illustrate this for you, his beloved son is already in a box. The reason for that is in week one of this series, if you missed it, we encouraged you to go all throughout the book and put a box around every direct reference to Jesus. There's gobs of them. I think there's 60 some direct references to Jesus. So, there's one right there. So, we had already done that. So, the word he refers to the father. He the father is the one uh, that has rescued us and delivered us. You'll, You'll see how this works out. Now there are two verbs in verse 13. Remember back in grammar school, the verbs always carry the action. You know, and by the way, that's a good thing to pay attention to in your Bible study. Pay attention to the verbs. And there's some powerful verbs in this particular verse. There are two. The first is delivered us or has delivered us. Technically, go ahead and underline these verbs. Underline delivered us. And then if you jump down a little later in the verse, there's transferred us. So two verbs showed up. God has done. So you know, God is the, the, the one who is doing this. And there's two things he's done. Delivered us and transferred us. And you sort of see how this verse is working in parallel. So delivered means to be taken out of a bad or dangerous situation. I don't know if any of us can go back to something in our minds where we were really in a sticky spot. We were in a a pickle. We were in a dangerous situation. And then we were taken out of that. Transferred means to be moved or relocated to a different place. So the idea here is, you were in a bad spot, you were in a dangerous spot, you've been delivered from that, saved from that, rescued from that, you've been transferred to somewhere else. Now, there's two other important verbs here that are not verbs, words, that really matter, and they're the prepositions. So I want you to draw a triangle, and I'll tell you which words in case it's been a while since you thought thinking, what's a preposition again? I can't exactly remember, trust me, I was not good at grammar when I was younger either. The words from and to, I want you to put a triangle around those words and they're important and I'll tell you why. There they are, we illustrated it there on the screen for you. You've been delivered from something or in this case, from some place and you've been delivered to somewhere else. So you've got from and to, these two contrasting prepositions and then finally, there are two contrasting locations. You've been delivered from one place You've been delivered to another, and I want you to circle those. So the domain of darkness, draw a circle around that, and then the kingdom of his beloved son, draw a circle around that. Now that we've marked up, and we got a little more to do, but now that we've marked up this, this verse 13, you can kind of see the logic of what Paul is doing here. You've been delivered from one place, the domain of darkness, transferred to a different place, a new place, the kingdom of his beloved son. You, you, you feel the contrast between us. See how Paul is working this out. By the way, the, uh, the idea of his beloved son comes straight from the moment at Jesus' baptism when he comes up out of the water and there's a voice that he hears and everyone around it hears. And it's the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son. And this is the son whom I love. This is the center of my affection the Father is saying, is on the Son. And that's where Paul is getting that idea from. So the kingdom, let's talk about kingdom, and let's talk about domain, because you have to understand which, where you've been rest, delivered from and where you've been transferred to for this verse to really kind of have some oomph and have some power. Domain is a Greek word that essentially means power or authority or control, Kingdom is an idea of the boundaries or the extent where a king or ruler has power, power, authority, or control. So Paul is using these ideas in parallel. So so here's the idea, and, and this is the place where I think this will start to make sense. Paul is saying you've been delivered from a place where darkness has power, authority, and control and transferred to a place where the Son of God has power, authority, and control. That's the idea. You've been delivered from darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the sun. From the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. Powerful, powerful verse. We're gonna come back to it in a minute. I wanna keep going in verse 14 as we continue just to kind of get the grammatical stuff out of the way and then we'll dig into the meaning and, and the metaphor and all this that Paul's going after. Look at verse 14, in whom... We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now there's a new who. We started with he referring to the father. Now in whom, is that still the father or is he referring to someone else? Well, you know he's referring to the son because just prior to that, he says, the kingdom of his beloved son in whom? So drawing an arrow would be a little bit awkward because it breaks the line. So what what I did there was I just wrote the son in parentheses. You probably can't read that in the back. But if you want underneath the word whom, just write the word the son to remind you it's a reference to the, the, the son, not the father, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Put brackets around the two things that we have in the son. Redemption, put a bracket around that word. And then the forgiveness of sins, you can put a bracket around that word as well. These are the two things that we have in the sun. Uh, by the way, these two are connected together. Forgiveness of sins, redemption, they're connected together. They're distinct and connected together. This word redemption is an incredible word. It's one of my favorite words in the New Testament. I, w- I wanna uh, unpack what this means for you. It's this idea of buying something back of redeeming it, of paying a ransom. So if someone's been kidnapped or someone's been held in captive... Someone else might come in, someone with the resources to do it, and buy their freedom, pay a ransom to buy their freedom. Uh, If someone was a slave in the ancient Near Eastern culture and someone else were to purchase them but not purchase them for the sake of keeping them enslaved, purchasing them for the sake of redeeming them, purchasing them for the sake of setting them free, that's this powerful, powerful Greek word that's translated into English as redemption. It's this idea that, that someone's paid a ransom For you, so that you're no longer a captive, you've been set free. And forgiveness of sins, which is connected to this idea of of redemption, is exactly what it sounds like. Your sins are forgiven, there's no longer any debt, there's no more obligation, nothing is held against you. So put yourself in the scenario of someone who'd been enslaved because you'd broken the law. Someone who'd been held captive and been forced to be a slave because you've done something terribly wrong. Maybe you've stolen food from the Lord of the land in order to pay for your family. And he said that the cost of your... uh, sin or the cost of your wrongdoing is you're going to be a servant to me. You're going to be an indentured servant to me. Someone else comes in, they pay the lord of the, the the property, the lord of the of the area a significant ransom. He says, "But hold on, just a minute." Their sin is still out there. They still did this wrong. And what Paul is saying is, no, not only are we redeemed, but our sins have been forgiven, so there's no longer any debt. There's no longer any obligation. Set free from our chains and set free from our sins. It's very, very powerful. Uh, By the way, the the sin that's referenced here is very much connected to the domain of darkness from the earlier verse, from verse 13. And we'll talk about that when, when we get back to verse 13. Now that we've marked up the two verses and and done kind of what we call the exegetical work, really just digging into these verses and seeing how all the words work and how it's connected together, now you can see the whole thing. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's a before and after. What's so good about the kingdom of the beloved son? Well, that's where, or in whom, in this case, in Jesus, you have two things, redemption, forgiveness of sins which are the very things that you didn't have before that kept you enslaved in the domain of darkness. So in summary, note that the Father has done two things in verse 13, delivered us and transferred us, and therefore in verse 14, we have two things, redemption, forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us, transferred us, therefore we have redemption, forgiveness of sins in Christ. Can I just pause and say what a good author Paul was? What a good writer. Do you see in one sentence, and they didn't even have punctuation back then, I mean, so everything was just kind of just a run on, but in one single thought idea, how much Paul was able to communicate. This was a very intelligent man, of course, obviously inspired by the Spirit, but a brilliant man as well, an excellent writer. Not only is he brilliant in the way that he constructs words, but he's brilliant in in the way that that he unleashes imagery. And that's what I want to talk about. Do you see how Paul is describing the gospel as an epic rescue story? He's intentionally, I mean, using this idea of domain of darkness. What a phrase that is delivered is the idea of rescued transferred is the idea of you know pulled out of enemy territory and brought to a new kingdom where everything is good and right i mean this is epic this is the image of a hero bravely venturing into enemy territory to do battle with the oppressors pay the ransom rescue the prisoners triumphantly bring them back to their home and let me just say this imagination matters when we read the scripture not the kind of imagination where you mean, make the scripture mean whatever you mean it to, you know, whatever you want it to mean. Not that kind of imagination. Not the kind of imagination is like, well, I imagine God to be this, you know, whatever. That's not rooted in the Bible. That's not the kind of imagination I'm talking about. I'm talking about how the Bible is filled with imagery. The Bible's filled with metaphor. The Bible's filled with word picture. And and the Spirit through the human authors uses these powerful images to teach us truth. Is Paul talking about a literal enemy, physical land, and now a new land? Well, yes and no. But mostly, this is an image. Mostly, this is this idea. Paul so wants you to understand how epic your rescue story is, how beautiful your redemption is, that he's putting it in this narrative. And so I imagine in my mind, I don't know where your brain goes, but I, I think about SEAL Team 6 going in to rescue the prisoners and, you know, airlift them out of there on their helicopter. You know, I think about when I'm younger, um, Rambo. You Remember Rambo, those movies, you know, Sylvester Stallone going in there like loaded up with all the bullets. I guess I shouldn't have been watching that stuff when I was little. But anyway, <laughs> I think about the A-team. Anybody old enough to remember the A-team? Or if anybody my age, you remember the A-team, you know? I think about, you know, when going back even younger than that, a knight in shining armor doing battle with the dragon. You know, where does your brain go? Where does your imagination go? By the way, if you're an artist or, or you're not an artist, but you like to doodle maybe, this is a great opportunity for you to illustrate in this journal or draw something, you know? I told you a couple weeks ago, when I was young, my dad would say, Rob, it's okay to draw during the sermon, but try to connect your drawings to something that the preacher is saying. And you know, I'd roll my eyes, be like, okay, whatever, dad. But whenever we'd get to a passage like this, oh yeah, now I'm gonna engage in that. So if, if that's how you're wired, and by the way, why do, we, why do we leave our imaginations when we're 10 years old, 12 years old? Why is that? I think we're impoverished for the lack of, of imagination as adults sometimes. This kind of language is meant to stir something in us. Paul is communicating a deep theological truth, but not in a dry way. That's all I'm trying to say here. Now, we're gonna dig into this theme of rescue because that's the main idea of the passage, and we're gonna apply it to our lives. So here's, you you need three things Three things in order for this text to have a powerful impact on your life, you know, which is what I promised at the beginning it can change the way you see your Christian life. Well, three things. You have to know where the theme comes from, biblically speaking. Where does the theme of rescue come from, biblically speaking? You have to know why it's so powerful and you have to know how it's essential to your own life. That's where we're gonna go the rest of the message. Where the theme comes from, why it's so powerful, how it's essential to your own life. Let's start with where it comes from. Here's an example of why Lloyd and I spend so much time teaching you how the whole Bible connects together from Genesis to Revelation. It's 66 individual books that tell one story. And so I want to connect something from the New Testament, i.e. Colossians 1, 13, and 14, to something from the Old Testament, there is one singular defining Old Testament event that more than any other event in the Old Testament gave an identity to the people of God. Someone just shout out what you think that Old Testament event was that was more significant than any other. Exodus. The Exodus, that's exactly right. And it, you know, it's, some of you are like, man, those people are really smart, how do they know? Well, at the very top of your, your note section, you'll see the title of the sermon, The Greater Exodus, There you go, there's a clue. All those uh, people that shouted out are like, I didn't see it. I was just smart. I'll give it to you, that's fine. (laughs) The Exodus, if you recall, is that moment in time where God used Moses to lead the people out of bondage, out of slavery, out of captivity in Egypt, where they'd been enslaved for generations. He led them out in a miraculous way and brought them to his own land, the promised land, where he his ruler, where he is king. He delivered them from the domain of darkness and rescued them, transferred them into his own kingdom. Do you see how this is the story that Paul is drawing from? The Exodus is unquestionably the most important event in Hebrew Old Testament history. It was never far from the collective imagination of the people. So when they were in the promised land for a period of time, they were celebrating how they got to the promised land. When they were plucked out of the promised land by Babylon because of their disobedience, later Assyria, and they were taken away, they longed to get back to the promised land. They prayed for a second exodus. They prayed for God to send them another Moses. Moses to lead them out of captivity and back into the land. He eventually led them back into the land. When Jesus shows up on the scene, guess what? They're praying for another Moses. They're praying for another Exodus because now they're in bondage again, this time in their own land by the Roman Empire. So when Jesus comes and they're starting to say, could this guy be the Messiah? They're wanting another Moses to deliver them, kick out the Romans, and establish God's rule, God's authority, just like he had promised. That was their expectation of Messiah. So when Paul taps into this imagery, you see, it's loaded. Paul is saying no less than this. The greater exodus has come, but it was not a physical or military rescue Not yet, anyway. It was a spiritual one involving redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's Paul's point. But here's the thing. Just because it was a spiritual rather than a military rescue does not make it any less epic. In fact, if you understand the idea of domain of darkness, which is where we're going to go in a few minutes, you'll see it's way more epic. The domain of darkness you've been delivered from is much darker than Egypt, much darker than Rome, much darker than any military power. And so the meaning this text would have had for the original hearer, whether their background was Hebrew or whether it was Gentile, they would have known the Exodus story. The Jews can't stop talking about this. And now Paul, a Jew who, remember, was a Hebrew scholar before he was a Christian, is connecting the dots. And you're saying, see what Jesus did? He is the greater Moses who delivered us in a greater Exodus transferred us from a domain of darkness into a new kingdom. Now, that's where the theme of rescue comes from. It's not just you know from our collective imaginations as human beings. It has biblical roots in the Exodus story. This is a greater Exodus that Paul is describing. But why is the theme of rescue so powerful regardless of culture, regardless of whether you know anything about the Exodus or not, regardless if you even believe in God or not, the theme of rescue is very powerful. It's why we see it in so many movies and so many fairy tales. The rescue theme is so powerful because it taps into some of the deepest desires of the human heart. And I want to talk about two of the desires that this theme touches. The desire for freedom and the desire for meaning. The desire for freedom, desire for meaning. This is what I want to talk about, how this this is contained in this theme. Let's start with freedom. Freedom is one of the most important human longings. It is a universal impulse to be free. Thousands of years of human history have proven that no human impulse, or sorry, that the human impulse for freedom is stronger Then any tyrant, any military power, those tyrants and and dictators and and strong militaries have eventually learned they cannot keep the impulse for freedom arrested forever. They cannot hold it back. Eventually, the people are going to rise up. Eventually, they're going to fight for their freedom. Uh, when I think about this idea, and you know, I think about Braveheart, I think about um, Mel Gibson in the role of William Wallace on a horse wearing a skirt. And what does he cry out? He's rallying the troops to go to their deaths and fight for their freedom. He says, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And this is when like the guys in the room, they're all like tearing up, you know, and our wives are looking at us like we're weird, and it's that. This is deep. It's deep in the heart. human beings, what I want you to see is the longing for freedom that you have, that we all have, is actually much deeper than physical freedom, much deeper than political or cultural or social freedom. Why is it that we live in a free country and yet we still are moved when we hear these stories and we see William Wallace on the horse? Why is this? I believe it's because there's a nagging sense in every human being that we're not fully free. Regardless of the blessings of living in a free country, which I'm tremendously grateful for, and we should be grateful for, we're not fully free, not in the sense of being fully alive or fully awake to our potential. No matter how free our government or political system allows us, each of us knows there's something oppressive inside of us. Internally, you see, there is a shadow kingdom. Internally, there is a domain of darkness in the heart of every single human being. Now, the way that that shows up in our lives is as an instinct toward selfishness, a self orientation, a, a darkness that says, at the end of the day, it's about me. Martin Luther described the fallen human nature, the sinful nature, with the phrase, the incurvature of the soul. It's the idea that the soul is turned in against itself, that God created us to be open-handed, open-hearted, outward-facing people to love him and others, and in our sin, we, we turn inward. We curl up like a ball and defend ourselves with the prickles that we have like a porcupine. We move towards self-protection. We move toward this instinct, toward selfishness. There is a domain of darkness. There is, think of it this way if it helps you, a dark nature in you that expresses its way in a variety of life-stealing actions and thoughts. So do you see what Paul is saying here when you start to think of the domain of darkness as something internal inside of you? Paul is saying there is a darker domain than Pharaoh's Egypt, and therefore there is a greater freedom than Moses' exodus. Your deepest longing for freedom is actually not to be set free from a political government or military oppression. It's to be set free from the domain of darkness inside your own heart. That's how deep your longing for freedom goes. And because you need a different kind of rescue at your heart level, at your your core soul level, you need a different kind of hero. You don't need William Wallace. You don't need George Washington. You, you You don't need all of these. Ultimately, who you need is Jesus, the hero who came to rescue you from the domain of darkness inside your own heart, inside your own inner being. You see, Jesus descended into that darkness He went all the way down. He put all of that darkness on him. And there he set you free. There in the pit of darkness, he turned the key. He released the chains and transferred you into a new kingdom. His kingdom, the kingdom of the sun, the only place where there's true freedom, freedom that actually matters. This is how... For hundreds of years in our own national history, a people that were enslaved in our country, many of them found a deeper freedom where they could sing songs and write songs of the freedom that they have in Christ that was greater than any freedom they could possibly hope to have externally, you see. And this has always been true for enslaved and held captive people all the way back and through the Old Testament. You see, there is a deeper freedom and the desire for freedom goes deeper than the external. Let's talk about the second deep human desire, the desire for meaning, the desire for meaning. Like freedom, meaning is also a universal longing of the human heart. It's the impulse to have a place in this world, the sense of significance that we all long for. We wanna matter. It's not sinful to want to matter. We wanna play a role in a story bigger than ourselves. We want to be swept up in a narrative that makes a difference. This is why all these movies, I think, are so compelling. You know, you watch a movie for two hours, you put yourself in the story, you're in in an epic narrative that matters. Now think about what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying the implications of the rescue story are you matter enough to be rescued. The hero of the story came not just at the risk of his own life, men and women. He came at the cost of his own life. He went down into the domain of darkness knowing exactly what it would cost him. Not wondering if it would cost him his life, knowing it would cost him his life. And he went. Why? Because you matter enough to be rescued. You are a part of the most epic rescue story creation has ever seen. But here's the thing. You're not the main character of the story. Jesus is. You're not the hero. Jesus is. And by the way, our culture is always wanting to make us the hero of our own individual stories. You know, our culture would say, seven billion people on this planet, seven billion stories. You know, you get to, your own identity, you get to decide. Your own journey, you get to decide. Your own story, you get to decide. Because you're at the center of your own story and don't let anyone tell you any different. That's not the narrow, That's not the narrative of God's word. That's not the, the true story of God's word. The true story of God's word is you're not the center. But you are the object of rescue. You're in the story and there's limitless significance in being the object of rescue, the one that the hero of the story, the center of the story, Jesus Christ, went down to rescue. You see how much that matters? Do you see how beautiful this true story is? You're not the center of the story, you're not the hero, but you're the object of rescue. So this rescue story goes straight to the core of at least two of our most fundamental human desires. The desire for freedom, the desire for meaning, that's why it's so powerful. Last thing, where the rescue theme comes from, why it's so powerful, finally, how it's essential to your own life. I believe we've lost the core narrative of Christianity in our culture today. And I think part of it is the culture taking it from us. Part of it is us giving it away. Here's what I mean. People today think of Christianity as either a set of beliefs to be believed or a set of religious activities to be practiced. Paul is saying at its core, Christianity is a rescue story. At its core, Christianity is a true narrative about the most important rescue event in human history. It's an historical event now, are there beliefs attached to it? Are there activities attached to it? Yes and yes, but at its core, Christianity is a rescue story. So here's the question this text asks us. Have you found your place in the rescue story? Or is Christianity to you just a you know, set of beliefs you believe or a set of religious activities that you practice? Have you ever asked yourself this question? In what way has Jesus rescued me? Another way to think about this question because by the way Paul, Paul would either say you've either been rescued or you haven't you've either been delivered from the domain of darkness or you're still a prisoner there which one are you so one way to answer this question is to ask it this way can you name what you've been rescued from can you name the domain of darkness inside your own heart which you have been delivered from and are being present tense delivered from because you're not done yet you might say sin, the domain of darkness you've been, I've been rescued from is sin, and you'd be right. But I don't think that kind of generic answer is specific enough to really orient you in the story, to actually find yourself where you can say, here's the story, here I am. It's that kind of generic answer, just saying, well, selfishness, I've been rescued from selfishness. I don't think that kind of generic answer will produce any real joy in you. I don't think it will set you free to live out the new identity that is yours in Christ. You have to dig deeper and ask, what is the sin that has held me captive? What effect have my sins had on my life and on the relationships around me? How has my sin stolen joy and fragmented my own heart? When we think about sin, we, we, we usually only immediately go to the behavioral right and wrong, and, and there's truth there, of course, but in his teaching, Jesus went well past that. In his teaching, Jesus says, you've heard it said this, external thing. Well, I say this, internal thing. Here's the good news. To the ones who could recognize their internal need, Jesus says, I've come for you. Jesus says, I've come for the sick, not the healthy. And by the way, all are sick, but only some have eyes to see their sickness, Jesus would say, you're the ones I've come for. If you, can, if you can own and name the domain of darkness, you will call out for rescue, and I've come to rescue. Jesus says, you're the ones I've come for. I'll transfer you, I'll deliver you, I'll bring you into a kingdom where you're no longer captive, you're no longer the authority and power of the shadow that's inside of you. Now, our mission as a church is to help people find a wholehearted life in Jesus. Do you see how this connects? Wholehearted life in Jesus starts with someone being able to name the domain of darkness, to confess that. All that confession means is to name, to agree, this is, this is dark inside of me, and then cry out for rescue. Who are they gonna cry out for? The only one that has a hope of rescuing them, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, life in Jesus begins. I want you to see a story of a member of our body, Sean Dean, who is finding wholehearted life in Jesus. I want you to watch his story, and then we'll talk about it for a couple minutes.
1: God brought me into a family where church was not essential in our lives. You know, we went Christmas, we went Easter. Uh, there wasn't much talk of God in my house. I just remember uh, being a, a child of divorced parents, how how lonely I felt at times and uh, how angry I felt at times. I remember when I was really just overwhelmed one day. I you know, a lot of kids making fun of me. Um, some bullying growing up and uh, I just remember God would you would you just change the way I look change the way I look and that'll make everything better you know I was wearing glasses at the time God fixed my eyes you know I was overweight at the time God helped me get skinny and strong you know I was um, I mentioned kids are making fun of me just uh, God help me help me look better help me look better and that'll that'll make things okay. Uh, but God knew what I really needed was people to love me and accept me for who I was. And that's what He did. Um, out of nowhere, my stepmom one day said, We're going to church. I said, Okay, whatever. Uh, we walk in, and three kids that I've never seen before in my life uh, came right up to me and asked me, What's your name? How'd you hear about the church? Uh, we'd love to invite you on this trip we're going on as a youth group. Uh, so I accepted uh, that invitation, and that's where uh, Jesus rescued me. My life changed a lot after that, uh, but it I still had a lot of work in my heart that needed, uh, needed to be done. I was... Uh, um, I had found pornography at an early age, about age 11, and that was a continuous struggle for me from age 11 until age 24. Um, I also had uh, found, found alcohol uh, at an early age, and that was a continuous struggle for me until I was about 24. So um, the way Jesus saved me from that was that He showed me that uh, I didn't have to try to seek the world or seek a, a false relationship, fake intimacy. Um, To be satisfied. In fact, those things could never satisfy me. Uh, But He showed me that if I came to Him uh, with my hurt, you know, if I came to Him uh, with my fear, you know, if I came to Him with my shame, uh, that He would show me that I was fully accepted, not because of what I did or didn't do, uh, but but because uh, He had adopted me as His son. He had paid the price uh, so that I could be His forever. You know, I no longer struggle with pornography. God has given me freedom from that. I no longer struggle with abusing alcohol. Jesus has given me freedom from that. And I'm finding wholehearted life in Jesus.
0: Sean's story illustrates this principle really well. Once you can identify what Jesus has rescued you from, you have a story to tell. It's not about, well, I'm a religious person. I didn't used to be a religious person. Now I'm a religious person. No, no, no. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And I want to speak to those of you who don't have a rescue story yet. I'm so glad you're here this morning. I don't think it's accidental that you are. And if you've never fully understand, well, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Do I have to get you know real spiritual and do all these things and start coming to church every week and reading my Bible? Is that what makes me good enough with God? Can I can I just say this? It's not that. The only thing you need to do is look deep enough in your own heart that you can name what is dark inside. And once you can see that, and all the the Bible calls that sin, it's darkness. Once you can see that, then cry out to rescue to the only one who can rescue you, the one who went down into that dark place to set you free. And he says, listen, I'm not going to force salvation on you, so if you will just cry out to me. The Bible says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just cry out to him. He says, rescue me. Save me. By faith, I believe you are delivered from the domain of darkness. And you are transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is redemption and forgiveness of sins. And then you can start living according to that. And so all Christians, whether you're a Christian for the first time in this moment or you've been a Christian for many, many years, do you understand, do you see that your identity is already in the kingdom? And now we have to learn to work out and live according to that new identity. There'll be a day that we'll no longer have to try. We'll just be living in it. (laughs) But in between now and Jesus' second coming, We need to live according to our new identity in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Paul's going to take us in the rest of this book.